Hello, welcome to Medicine Unbox Voices. My name is Sam Giglani. Here we go in pursuit of conversations about medicine, not just about what it is and what it does, but about what it means, about the whole surprise of human life, its inevitable weathering, and the challenge of how to care for all of us. I'm at Lancaster University today with Professor Dame Sue Black, who is an anatomist and a forensic anthropologist. She's currently Pro Vice-Chancellor here at Lancaster University. She was the lead forensic anthropologist for the UK response to war crimes investigations in Kosovo and has served to us in Sierra Leone, Grenada, Iraq, and also in Thailand following the Asian tsunami. She's been awarded two police commendations for her work in disaster victim identification, training for and helping secure convictions against perpetrators of child sexual abuse. And she's the author of the book, All That Remains. Sue, welcome to Medicine Unboxed Voices. Thank you, you're very kind. You were um, caught by anatomy at a really young age. I think I was caught by it long before I even realised it was anatomy. So my, my maiden name was Gunn, and my father, ironically maybe, was a terrific shot. And so my father would go out shooting and I loved my father and I would do anything to spend time with my father. So if he would go out shooting and he was shooting for deer or rabbits or pigeons or whatever it may be. And any opportunity to go out with him for me was just a treat. And so I would be a long way behind him whilst he was shooting because he was he was very safety How conscious. How old was this? How old were you? I'd have been about seven. Yeah. I would think, you know, six, yeah. six seven sort of age. And um, whenever he bagged anything, of course, it was my job to help him bring it home. And my mother was a bit squeamish. <laughs> and so it became my job to help my father to pluck, to gut, to grillich, which is what you do to get the, inside, get the inside out of a deer. Grillich. So, <laughs> so if you grillich a deer, yeah. um, just to take all the innards out. And I, I suppose from a very young age, didn't think there was anything particularly unusual about that, of being up to your elbows in, in blood or muscle or bone or whatever it may be. Everything was always for the pot, so it was never a gratuitous shot in any way. And you've got to bear in mind, you know, at that time, you know, we, we weren't particularly wealthy. So if you could get a couple of rabbits to put in the pot, then that was that was supper that we didn't have to pay for. And we lived right out in the countryside. So it was it was quite idyllic in that regard. And so I never really thought that I had an early introduction to anatomy. But when I was about 12, mm. my father said to me, right, you need to get a job. And, and I thought he meant when you get older, you need to get a job. He meant at 12, because he was a good Scottish Presbyterian who believed that you are put on this, this earth to work and that if you weren't working, you were just wasting your time. And so you know, we didn't do holidays. We didn't go away and do nothing. Your father, My father expected us to be at school all day, and then if we weren't at school, he expected us to be in a job. And so at 12, I managed to find myself a job in a butcher shop, which again was perfect. So I'd gone from skinning and, and gutting stuff into serving it in a butcher shop. So again, it seemed perfectly logical. And I think at that point, I started to get an appreciation of, of the red stuff I was looking at was muscle. 
and the white stuff I was looking at was bone and things started to get a noun and so you could identify whereas before it was just rabbit um, by the time I was in the butcher shop it had become muscle and tendon and bone and artery and and why was that interesting so I mean I get the familiarity and the comfort being elbow deep in flesh what was the what was the fascination of that? Was it the naming of it? No, I, I, if you walk, I, I love walking into a butcher shop today. It, it's just so pleasing to see everything laid out with almost clinical precision. Order. Yes, I like the order. And, you know, if a butcher is going to roll a piece of brisket, he or she knows exactly where to place the knife yep. to remove that bit of muscle, to get it into that shape, to be able to roll it. So it was knowing where something is, knowing that it's usually always there. Variations, but not an awful lot. Knowing that there's a skill to it and then being able to name it and also be able to figure out on the animal what it had been doing when it was alive. Did it ever, I mean, you're so primarily a scientist and I take it buy into the fact of human evolution does it ever or evolution of all life does it ever it ever does it still ever astonish you that that kind of complex infinitely complex order exists purely by virtue of natural selection over millennia oh it's just it's just a miracle <laughs> it really is a complete miracle mm. you know knowing that that what forms where it forms produces the function that it does mm. And that it doesn't only do it in you as a species, it's doing something very similar in another species. But because that species is on four legs and you're on two, it takes a different shape and it does something slightly different, but it's still got the same template. And being able to work back that where, where it's a common feature and then when it's something really different, I think is, is fascinating. And that came in biology in school. So I started to learn then that what I'd seen in the animal and what I was seeing in the butcher shop, I could relate it to what was happening between the human and the animal when we started to study biology. And then what was the leap then from this um, fascination with anatomy, with form, with function, with order towards forensics? It, it, it again, I think, is all very... Um, very sort of logical steps. I think it was Steve Jobs who said age is a wonderful thing because it allows you to have that time to stop, to turn around and to look at the journey of your life. And you can find the crossroads then where you made decisions. And you might not know why you made them at the time, but now with hindsight, you, you can, can figure it, it out. Yeah, see the pattern. I could understand the butcher shop because it was a natural progression. All my friends were working in chemists or fashion shops and they thought what I was doing was utterly gross but I loved it and my biology teacher um, who I adored Dr Fraser I mean he was just the most wonderful yeah. teacher um, he was the one who said to me you're going to university and I didn't was that know unusual? it was I was the first person in my family <clears throat> to go to university yeah. and amongst your contemporaries um, my friend Linda and I decided we would go together and our um, careers teacher said that both of us would be thrown out within the year. It was close for Linda. She nearly was. Why? Um, Why did she say that? She was having a great time and she was on the wrong course. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, she changed her courses yeah. and then it became much better for her. Um, but he said, you know, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know why you're going to university. You'll be thrown out. And the very fact that he said that to me made me determine that I wasn't right. going to be. But I knew I would go and do biology because that's what Dr. Fraser did. And my first and second years were things like genetics, which really just 
didn't float my boat. Um, soil science, I was never going to dig holes for a life ever. Um, psychology, which I never got my head around literally. All sorts of subjects that I thought, I'm not sure why I'm here. And by the end of second year, I was having that conversation with myself, thinking, I don't know why I'm here and I don't know where I'm going with this. And if I had been in the position that, that people are in now, I had a grant so I could afford to go to university to find that time to do what I wanted to do. I wasn't paying fees every single year or accommodation every single year. I had that grant. And that was a very privileged position that I realise now and perhaps didn't realise at the time. But by the end of second year, the only things I was any good at were botany or I'd done some histology and I'd gone to the botanist to decide whether I wanted to be a botanist and he bless him he was a lovely man but he was so dull that I was never ever going to be a botanist so I wrote it off just purely on the basis of that poor man and I went to anatomy and I said look if I've got to look down microscopes for the rest of my life I won't want to do this and they said no 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 you dissect and I thought well dissection is not far removed from the butcher shop mm. and I like the butcher shop so I suspect I like dissection and that first moment, you'll remember it when you go into a dissecting room and you put the scalpel blade on and suddenly you have to cut through human flesh. It is a real Rubicon. You can't go back and do it again. You can only ever do it once. And from that point forward, I knew I was hooked. So you were, what, 19, 20? I would, well, I left school at 17. Okay. So I was 17 yeah. and into yeah. 18 in my first year. But by the time I got into the dissecting room, I'd have been 19. Yes. Um, Isn't it interesting what you said about your teacher there and how really pivotal those individuals can be, your, bio your biology teacher, if you hadn't catalysed that interest for you? Obviously, teachers are some of the most important people in a young person's life. Mm. And I know our, our, our family are terribly important. Mm. But a teacher, you will know, if you have a really bad teacher, chances are you're never going to look at that subject. No, you're, no, you're not going to like it. The teacher can spark the enthusiasm and I would have done anything to please yes. him because he was yes. just such a wonderful gentleman and he was a marvellous teacher. And many, many years later, the Royal Society of Edinburgh, when I was a fellow, um, said, we're going to do some school outreach. Where would you like to go? And I said, oh, I'd love to go back to Inverness Royal Academy just simply because that had been my, my school. I knew he'd retired. What I hadn't known is they'd let him know that oh. I, I was coming into the school. So he'd come out of retirement. And so to see him in the front row was just, yeah. you know, it was such Absolutely. a moment. Yeah. And one of the students, not prompted, <clears throat> had said to me, why did you do what you do? And it was so easy to be able to say, because of that this man. man. Yeah. And it is simply because yes. of that man. And so they asked me a few years later to come back and do the prize giving. And I said, I'll only do it if I can do it with him. So and it's did the you, two of us. Yes, we did. We absolutely did. And I think, you know, so often along the way, we don't realise when we impact yes. significantly on someone. Yeah. And when that does happen, I think we have a duty to let them know the difference that they've made. And also, I suppose, just to remember that because we don't know when we can have that impact, always to be position towards it because you have no idea you what's don't. going to you know, you know butterfly effect wise is going to two years ten years to 50 years yes i would not be where i am yes without his you're going to university tell me in in your career as a forensic anthropologist what's 
things have changed with regards to the science quite dramatically. I'm particularly interested in the hand recognition software. Could mm. you say a bit about that? Yeah. So things have changed in forensic anthropology. Probably the biggest change was DNA, to mm. be honest. Um, and everybody felt that once we now have DNA, we're not going to need any other science. Yes. Unfortunately, or fortunately, that's that's just not true. Um, the, the crime that I am most frequently involved in in the current times relate to images of child sexual abuse. And it is a, an unusual crime in that the perpetrator of a crime generally doesn't photograph or film themselves committing the crime. So if you're going to rob a bank, you don't film yourself robbing the bank. Mm -hmm. If you're going to murder your partner, you don't film yourself doing that. But if somebody is going to sexually abuse a child, often, but not always, they will film or they will photograph themselves doing it. It's partly because they want to relive it, so they want to be able to go back and, and gain access to those images to, to relive the experience, or they want to share it with like-minded people, or for some people there is actually a currency in it as well, so that you can sell on these images. And... What generally happens is that a computer or a mobile phone or something finds itself in the hands of somebody who's not expecting to see indecent images of a right. child. Right. And suddenly it comes to the police's interest. Now, it might be that the police will seize um, cameras yes. or um, mobile phones if they know that somebody in an address is accessing indecent images. Then you come in, you swoop in in the address, and, and you actually secure everything. But sometimes it's about a family member going through images or files on a computer or on a phone mm. and suddenly find something that they don't expect. And so the police will then uh, usually interview the person. They may well charge, arrest the person. Um, and often you will find that, that the, the suspect um, in the case will either do a, a no comment um, or they will say not guilty. Some will plead there and then, but few do. And so the job is to say of these images, holding the images is an offence transporting them and translating them to somebody else, sending them to someone else, is another offence. But if you're the person in the photograph committing the offence, then that's an even larger tariff. <laughs> so for the police, the question is, when they see the photographs, is this something I've seen before? Yes, OK, it's the kind of image that's doing the rounds. So it's just a generic image probably downloaded from the dark web. Um, is there any evidence that this person has um, shared that image with somebody else? But then if this is a, what they call a first-generation image, mm. which means they've not seen it before, mm. that means you have the possibility that the person who, who owns that mobile device is, in fact, the perpetrator of the crime. And in those images, you, the part of anatomy that you tend to see most frequently is the back of the hand. And we're used to the front of the hand being used for identification because mm. it's where our fingerprints are. Mm. But on the back of the hand, um, there's a lot less information about which we know just how useful that is for identification. So we started to do some research on the amount of variation there is on the back of your hand. And, you know, you look at your hands and I see my father's hands. My mother had the most delicate hands. My father had shovels. And so I have my father's hands. There's nothing delicate about me at all. Um, 
the skin colour tells me that, you know, I'm, I'm of a particular ancestry. The freckles tell me about the genetics that I have because I have to have that gene to have those freckles. But over and above that, what it also tells me, <clears throat> even if I take my rings off, it's a long time before that that mark disappears. So anyone who thinks they can go into a bar and somebody's <laughs> fooled by the fact that you're not married can, you know, just get a grip. Um, so we will talk about habitual wearing of jewellery because that may well lead indents or it may well change the colour of skin if it's underneath, for example, the right. watch. But then you get into the inherent anatomy of the person. And so if you look at the superficial vein patterns that you have on the back of your hand, it's different on your right and your left hand, different and identical twins. They're laid down when you're a fetus. Once you start to form the vessels, the pattern of coalescence of the vascular puddles as they form is what forms the arborescent tree pattern of the vein system. And because we've got different pressures on right and left side of our body, because it is in a different position in the womb, all sorts of things, you find that you get a different pattern. Extraordinary and stuff. But then it happens, well, it happens on the, the skin creases over your knuckles as well. So when you think that when that finger forms, it forms as a, a single rod of cartilage. And then what happens is cells die where the joints form. And so you get a space. And because you formed a joint, it means that the finger can flex and extend, which means the skin has to have some flexibility. And so the skin creasing over the knuckles forms when you're a fetus inside mum. And it's different across each of your fingers and different across your hands. So we can look at these images of these perpetrators and say, here is the anatomy of this perpetrator. Here is the anatomy of your suspect. If there are differences that we can't explain, perhaps because of time, so one may have scars that the other doesn't, one may have an amputation the other doesn't, um, if you can explain that by time, then you can ignore those differences. But if the vein patterns are different in the two individuals, they can't be the same person. I'm listening to you. Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm <clears throat> caught between complete wonder of, of that, but also that what you're describing is such um, acts of such cruelty. And, and so your work with, with perpetrators of child abuse and your descriptions of the um, victims of genocide in Kosovo and the like, how do you contend with meeting face-on the results of that kind of cruelty all the time? I had um, a beautiful piece of advice from a gentleman called Charlie Hepburn. And Charlie was um, head of CID in Inverness for Northern Constabulary when there was such a thing before it became Police Scotland. And Charlie, uh, a lovely man. And it was when I was looking, starting to think about being involved in these images. And I said, what do you think I should do, Charlie? And he said, don't do it. As his advice says, don't do it. He said, once you get these images in your head... You can never get them out. But he said, I know you're not going to listen to me and you're going to do it anyway. So he said, the best piece of advice I can give you is to say, you didn't cause this. You're not responsible for it. You don't carry the guilt. You're being asked to do a job and your job is find the evidence, recover the evidence, analyse the evidence and present it. You're not responsible for anything else. You're not here to find somebody innocent or guilty. But even with that, even with that acknowledgement of rational fact, 
it still points clearly to the fact that the world is human persons on this planet are capable of very great evil, cruelty, whatever word we decide to, to use for this. That's most of us can go around the our, our daily existence facing that on the 10 o'clock news and then retreating back into our comfortable suburban lives. Your profession doesn't allow that. No. But, but you realise that when you come into the profession. So there is a real need to compartmentalise who you are as a, as a mum, as a wife, as a grandmother, um, and who you are as the professional scientist. If I cannot go into a crime scene as an impartial, objective scientist, then I shouldn't be going into that crime scene. And, and it is about finding almost the blinkers that stop you looking at humanity in the wider sense and simply focus on the job that you have to do that day. There is, I mean, always, you know, when the passage of time occurs and you do have that time to think back. Of course you go into that moment of thinking, how could somebody do that? How could it have been stopped? But you can't make it personal, because if you make it a personal a personal mission or you know, a personal drive, then you can't do your job. But does it leave you feeling fearful about the world or um, hopeless? Quite the opposite. Because? Absolutely the opposite, because what we tend to do and you see it in the news, is that we focus almost every day and exclusively <clears throat> on the bad things that happen in life, on the evil that people do. And there is much more kindness, there's much more human spirit out there than there is evil. And what we do is we report on the bad things. Yeah. We don't yeah. report on the good things. No. And when you go into somewhere like Kosovo, for example, when you say you can't possibly take anything positive out of Kosovo. Of course you do. Yes. You know, you're standing at the side of a grave with a, a woman who's lost her husband, her children, her house, her belongings, everything. And you think, wh where's the humanity in there? Mm. It's her humanity because she will come to you carrying a cup of tea. Mm. It's her way of saying, this is awful, but I recognise you're doing a job and you're helping me. And that spark of human humanity is what you find in every single bad situation I've ever been in. Sometimes you have to look for it, but it's there. And that, for me, obliterates, not completely, but by and large obliterates the overwhelming feeling that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Mm, okay. No, it's not. And it's at least co-present. It yeah. is. It's co-present. And it's in the most unexpected places with people who have reached a level of grief, despair and hurt that you could only imagine. And that tells me that that human spirit, when it is so far depressed, still has the strength to come out and show what it's actually all about. Well, I think that's you know really important to hear and for you to witness it. And Every single time... That, you know, there isn't an incident I, I can remember where even in, you know, the most awful mass grave situations that you're in, you can't find something in that day that said, actually, humanity's better than this. It is better than this. When you face bodies in, 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 after death, <clears throat> it, it strikes me, and this is something I sometimes find um, 
with patients who I think may not have a long time to live, it's suddenly astonishing to me that the, the fabric of them is just matter. That that's what we that's what we are. And I'm I'm sometimes thinking I find myself thinking, well, that's is that astonishing or is that something slightly um, empty? Yeah. Uh, and it's somewhere between the two. I vacillate wildly between the two. But you, you've talked about on the one hand recognizing this matter you see that but your insistence on maintaining the dignity of the of the deceased what does that mean to you when you talk about that Uh, everything um i have experienced the dying the death and the dead and they're they're very different phases so Mm. my father um who i adored i was with him on the night that he died and i held his hand as he took his last breath and nothing would ever have persuaded me to leave my father's side for as long as he was alive. When he died, it was it was the last breath scenario. I mean, he, he was an elderly gentleman. His time had come. Um, it was a release for, for everybody, including him. His Alzheimer's was, it was just truly awful. He'd become immobile. He hadn't talked for a year. My father would have hated, he was an ex-regimental sergeant major. He would have hated that. And so his death was a very positive thing. But being present when the last breaths were being taken and they became shallower and shallower, and then what you get is uh, the the fluid in the lungs so you can hear the rattling Mm. of, of air in the fluid and he stopped breathing. At that point, my father had gone and what was left in front of me wasn't my father. It was the vehicle he'd habit you know he'd he'd lived in that vehicle for 80 odd years but he wasn't he didn't need it anymore Mm. and so I could leave my father's body with no qualm whatsoever because it wasn't my father my father had gone are you describing there if I may ask you may not have the language for this but are you almost pointing to the idea of a soul or is that too um loaded a word I I, I, is it is it the right word I don't know there is something Mm. There is something about us alive, and this is a stupid thing to say, but there is something very different about us alive than there is dead. And whatever it is that changes on that threshold is palpable. The the body that is left behind is genuinely dead material. Um, It is not something that I could have felt for my father I had any any bond to the bond was my father it was his personality it was his naughtiness the twinkle in his eye it was the laughter it was the care it wasn't what he looked like and what he lived in so does it go somewhere else or is it just a collective something that becomes you as the inherent person that just goes when you can no longer maintain it Possibly. I'm not a believer in an afterlife. No, I'm not a no. believer in, in something beyond that point. If it was, my father would have been back here many times, I'm sure. Um, but nonetheless, there's something, but there's something <clears throat> extraordinary in the animation. The fact it, of it, it is. It's the personality. Yes. It's, you know, we are the sum of lots of experiences and the way in which we interpret those, we live them, the way we interact with other people. That's who the person is. We just look at the body, but the real person is actually inside that. Of course, this, you know, brings to mind your very real, what's the word, ambivalence around modern medicine, 
and it's <laughs> oh, that's gone. not fair. I'm not totally ambivalent. Well, no, but I think for me, it's I am, well, but not well, for others. Uh, well, it's it's drive. Yeah, let's say it's um, preoccupation with often prolonging life. Yes, at all at costs. All costs. Yeah. Tell me what you think of that. Or, or, and I know you're speaking personally, but you'll be speaking to a lot of people's This, this is very personal, and I here. absolutely accept that other people will have different views. Um, when my mother died, or my mother was dying, she was six weeks from, from healthy to dead. And a lovely consultant in the hospital who t- sat me down as her next of kin to say, now, do you want us to put her on an organ register? And I went, no. You know, she's 75 or whatever she was. A, you're going to take that organ away from somebody that you could give to someone perhaps a lot younger that has a life to live. My mother is elderly. She's she's lived her life. She probably wouldn't survive the operation. You know, chances are she would have had so so many issues in terms of rejection. Why would you do that? And so you could see the absolute relief on his face And I said, no, I don't want her put on an organ register. And no, I want, I do want a do not resuscitate so that when her time comes, let her go. And if you can ease her passing so that she has no pain, um, you know, no fears, then you know, you've got my blessing to do that. And she wasn't a morphine drip, you know, towards the end. So I firmly believe that you have a duration on this earth. And my aim in life was to become old enough that my children were self-sufficient. And they are. My youngest is now 22. So from my perspective, I don't need to be kept alive longer than is my natural extent. If I was going to get 20 more years when I was 20, fantastic. But doctors want to give me 20 more years when I'm 70. And I don't think I want that. Now, I may feel entirely different when the time comes. But the last time I visited my GP was when I was pregnant with Anna. And she's 22 now. (laughs) And that's not because I don't like my GP. It's not because I'm afraid of what they'll say. I have not had any need to go there. If I'd had a need, I suspect I would have done it. So I've been very, very fortunate that I have not needed any form of medication for anything in my lifetime. So I know I'm blessed. And now in me, there's a part of me that says, having got to this age, if I've got another 10 years, if I've got another 20 years, I want it to be as natural as it's going to be. I don't want my life to become medicated. I don't want to become the patient who has. Um, I would rather die five years earlier than have that five years as a medicated person um, being you know, constrained by visits to GPs and hospitals. And I know that very quickly I would become dissatisfied with that and I wouldn't do it anyway. But you're, <clears throat> it's interesting because you're, you're um, committed to a different version of longevity, aren't you, in terms of your body being used to teach anatomy. oh yes but that 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 to me is is the fact that i don't believe in waste so that's the scottish presbyterian <laughs> in me as well in that because i don't believe in a life beyond here if anybody can use what's left of this body and i haven't abused it too badly um if anybody can use any of it use it so whether that is for organ transplantation take everything take anything 
if I'm too old or if they're no longer suitable for that purpose, then I want my body to go to the anatomy department. Everything for the pot. Be, absolutely. I want to be dissected. The trouble is that being, being a bit of a control freak, I actually would like to do the dissection, which I know I can't do, but I want to see what this looks like inside. I've lived with it for 58 years. And so being able to see x-rays, I love because I, I know exactly what I've done and where. I want to see inside. But then when I'm dissected, what I would like them to do is collect up all the fat and the muscle and all the soft tissue and just, just incinerate that. But I want them to collect the bones together. And I want them to boil the bones down because you need to get rid of all the fat. <laughs> well, there's fat inside bone. Yeah, there's, there's, it's just the way it goes. Um, and then I want them to restring my skeleton Yeah. because I want to stand in the dissecting room and I want to teach for the rest of my death so that I don't ever plan ever to stop working. Oh, the rest of my death. I've not heard yeah. that. For, that's a great <laughs> But, you know, I've worked for all my living. I want to work in my death. I want to be put to good use. Look, you've just said to me... Um, I want to see what's inside. Yeah. I, I, th there's a phrase that comes to mind. So Peter Vanessis in Kosovo, faced with what he was faced with, said, I can't do this, but I know someone who can. Yeah. Pointing in a straight line to you. What I want to see inside is, is, is less your anatomy, but who is this person who somehow manages to um, combine extraordinary humour and resilience and fortitude what, how, how does that arrive in an individual because it strikes me that you're utterly given to the service of what you do yeah absolutely so where does that come from um what drives you to do me? things in the way that you do um it probably comes back as it always does to my father in that I have a fearsome work ethic, which he gave to me, unquestionably he gave to me. So um, when our youngest daughter was about eight, she said to my husband and I, Mommy, Daddy, have we ever been on holiday? We thought, oh, that's probably not very good. So, OK, let's take the girls on holiday. And bless him, my husband, he, he hired a villa for us in the south of Portugal. And by day two, I was so bored that whilst they were jumping in and out of the pool and he was barbecuing something, I was at the side of the pool with my laptop writing a textbook. And so I don't know what to do when I'm not working. And my work has to have a purpose. What is the purpose? The purpose is to try to use the skills that I have, that I've been given and that I've developed over the years through working with some fantastic people who've taught me so much to try to make the place better the than place. when I came in, the world yeah. better than, than when I came into it, just by doing my bit. So if you can impact on one person, then your life was worthwhile. You've, you've got to have made something better for somebody else or done something that will make it better for a community or a country, or a world, whatever it is, at whatever level, you have to have done something that cumulatively makes it a better place. And do you think your um, facing of our flesh, our mortal matter, almost makes you 
see your own unimportance in a way. Oh, totally, totally. Because at the end of the day, what's important is, from my perspective as a forensic someone, who is this in front of me? Because the person in front of me is going to have a wife, a husband, a mother, a father, a son or a daughter. And they are sitting somewhere in the world not knowing what's happened to that person they care about more than anything. And if what you can do is bring together the pieces that say to that family, I'm really sorry, but this is your mum. What that does for them, it sounds cruel, but it takes away the hope. But the hope was always a false hope anyway. But it allows them to start to recognise it and to move on. Maybe that partner can go and find another partner and have a happy life. Maybe a child can accept it and move on. It's about making a really bad situation as good as you possibly can. And sometimes you have a skill set that you learn, that you acquire, that you can use to that benefit. It's never about you. It can't be about you. It has to be about what you're doing and how you can make a difference, whether to the victims or the victims' families, or that there is someone responsible for this, and therefore the courts need to make a decision on the guilt or the innocence of that person. Maybe that person can be rehabilitated to then go on and do something much more beneficial. It's about paying forward all of the gifts that you've been given and paying it forward so that others can do that too. Sue Black, on that note, we have to finish, as always, um, a privilege. Thank you very much for talking to us today. You're, it's always a pleasure. And you are responsible for the person being the book, uh, the person responsible for the book that I wrote. Because if you remember, quite some time ago, I was due to come down to Medicine yes. Unbox and I couldn't make it. I can't yep. remember why. And I gave my presentation over Skype. You did. And in the audience was Trans World, Susanna Wadeson. And it's because of Medicine Unboxed that All That Remains was written. So I need to thank you as well. Thanks very much. See you back. Bye-bye. Medicine Unboxed keeps its large audio and film archive online. Do take a look. But for now, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoy it. Oh, no.